Hello and welcome to another episode of Childhood Evolved. I'm your host, Teacher Alex. This podcast is all about continuing to evolve the state of childhood forward along the path it's been on for centuries. It really wasn't that long ago in our history that childhood was not even acknowledged to exist, and let alone to be advocated for as a period of special, unique development. And so things haven't changed by accident, but by dedicated and caring people advocating for children relentlessly. My name is Alex, and I've been a preschool teacher for quite some time. I certainly don't have all the answers. In fact, sometimes it seems like every day with kids brings new questions and challenges and even less answers. But my role here really is to spark conversations and deeper thinking about all things related to young children. Birth through five in particular is my specialty. So today I'd really like to talk about activities and experiences for young children especially circle time, and try to get to the heart of what's valuable for children. As adults, we're really responsible for managing children's time for them and making decisions about what they will or won't be doing with their time. And it's a big responsibility that often maybe we don't put quite as much thought into as we could. So a few days back, I came across a parent who was really just raving about one of her child's preschool activities. And it really, it didn't sit well with me. And I guess I've spent a few days now just kind of processing it, thinking about how to articulate in this podcast what it is that kind of bugs me about this. Because there's so many different directions I could go in and talking about what happens in preschool, what happens in a circle time. And so this activity in particular, well, what was so bad about it? Before I even describe that, I'm thinking of a mentor I had uh, years ago who taught me that there's really a world of difference between an activity and an experience for a young child, or really for all of us. And if you stop and think about things in your own life, think about what are things that are activities, something that you have to do just to get it done, to check it off your list. It might be a bit of a burden or kind of a mindless thing, driving to work, washing the dishes, things like that. And an experience is really different. An experience is something that you immerse in. You take part in it, you become a part of it, Maybe it becomes a part of you, and it's transformative. And so activities might more accurately be labeled as busy work. And it doesn't necessarily matter what you're doing. You might be washing your dishes and having a spiritual vibe going on because that's your quiet time or you have music on, and that's an experience for you and something that really fills you up. Or it's an activity to check off your list. Your job might be something that you experience, or it might just be an activity. And so the Contrast between these two things is a really helpful lens to look at when we're talking about what happens with young children in their preschool classrooms on a day-to-day basis. So I'm thinking of this classroom in my head, and it's kind of a composite because I've seen a lot of schools and a lot of classrooms and certainly don't want to call anyone, anyone out or make anyone feel judged or anything because one of the things in this field is we're all doing our best. It can be hard to get information and to enroll in class, go to school, and learn something new, and really take the next step to advocate for young children. It's hard. It's not a field that typically pays a lot of money, and yet it's a really demanding job, and it's really hard to continue to grow and learn and become better and better. So 
even when I think about what I was doing as a teacher five or 10 years ago, it's certainly changed and evolved. So when I kind of think back through the different classrooms I've been in, talking about it here on the show, it's kind of just a composite, kind of like when you're reading a book and they say, this doesn't represent any actual person or place or thing. It's all fictitious, that kind of thing. Protecting identities is particularly important in this field. I think protecting identities is particularly important because we are dealing with a vulnerable population, children and families and staff who are just showing up every day and, and really just trying to do their best. So this classroom I'm thinking of in my head is, let's just picture a child, imagine a child sitting at a table and their hand is down on a piece of white paper, kind of held there by a teacher's hand so it doesn't wiggle around and the teacher's tracing the hand, tracing the lines and then cutting it out. And then the child gets the brown paint and gets to paint the hand, gets a couple of googly eyes and feathers and whatever else, and is sort of told where to put them. Or maybe in the more progressive classrooms, they can put the googly eyes and the pom-poms wherever they want. And then it's hung on the wall, and everyone's super-duper happy. And we haven't really necessarily stopped to ask, what has this child really learned here? Sure, maybe their fine motor's a little bit strengthened from pushing down on those googly eyes. But they weren't the ones to do the cutting. They didn't choose the color of paint. They didn't choose to make a turkey hand that day. It was just kind of something imposed on them by the teacher or by the program. And so this classroom I'm thinking of, at the same time, places a really high value on circle time. Circle time is something you're going to find probably in pretty much every preschool, I would say. And so in, in this fictitious composite program that I'm thinking of, they really want their children to develop the skill of sitting still and listening for an extended period of time. So it's really not okay for you to be rolling around or taking off running, anything like that. You got to be participating in circle time. And this can go for two-year-olds, three-year-olds, five-year-olds. I've seen it anywhere in that age range. And so these are not bad goals at all. These are things that you need to develop, self-regulation. And once you hit kindergarten, it's going to be kind of expected, which I guess in our society at this time is a little unfortunate considering kindergarten originally was something created to have a slow, gentle, play-based introduction to school. And now all of a sudden, it's something that you have to prepare for. A lot has changed in a pretty short period of time and kind of in the wrong direction in that category. So I don't know, how do you call that? Childhood de-evolved, de-evolution? Anyhow, for me, you always have to weigh what you're doing with what the alternatives are. There's an opportunity cost to whatever we're doing. So I had a really wise mentor in college, and I think she was kind of thinking out loud once or talking to a colleague and saying, why do we even really need to have circle times for young children? Are they even really appropriate? And it's always stuck with me and kind of churned around in the back of my mind. And I ask myself, wouldn't children just be better off meeting the world in their own terms? In school, which is a place designed to help them learn and grow. Because we know that young children need to move and experience to learn. And they're all so unique. If you have 20 kids sitting in a circle, they might need to learn 20 different things at 20 different paces or rates and in 20 different ways. And it's so hard to get everyone on the same page and to have what they might call group think or group mind, which honestly really doesn't exist at this age. Children are cognitively egocentric and they're in their own world and that's not a bad thing. It's, it's their stage of development. And just like if we give them enough time, they're gonna grow taller. You don't have to worry about it. Just leave them alone, wait a few years, they're gonna grow taller. It's the same thing with cognitive egocentrism. 
just let them be and eventually they'll grow into more community oriented community minded people on their own people stress about that a little too much anyhow in terms of circle time it's it's really often about an adult trying to draw the child into their world and not the other way around and for me one of the most exciting parts of teaching this age is the free play because it invites me the adult into the world of children not even really I forget about the role of teaching in some of these moments and become a student myself. I'm observing, I'm learning, I'm asking myself so many questions and I'm getting the opportunity to slow down and learn about these children first. Let's learn about who they are before we try to jump in and stuff a bunch of information into their head. I'm asking myself, what do they already know? And one of my favorite questions, how do they solve their problems? How are they going to solve this problem that comes up? They're both pulling on a shovel and they're getting really angry. How are they going to solve their problems and what's my role in that? Whereas a circle time is really often a teacher. Not not always. I shouldn't say always or often, but it can be a teacher with a preset agenda ranging anywhere from like really silly things like trying to teach a calendar to a group of four-year-olds or the seasons, things like that that are really low priority or, or cognitively inappropriate at these ages. And then there's more valuable goals, like having a deeper conversation or having a debate. And so even with those really excellent circle times that I've seen, that question still sticks in my mind about whether or not it's the best use of children's time. Wouldn't these discussions be better in smaller groups? I mean, I've had a lot of great, powerful discussions in groups of three or four at the snack table or at the lunch table. And so when we're talking about the value of circle time itself, I think we have to ask, are the adults in charge really, truly being self-reflective with the content? Can they answer the tough questions like, why does a three-year-old need to know this? Why do they need to know about the seasons and how they change and what happens here and there all at once? What could they be learning instead? And I got to say, sometimes we don't even nail our content. I mean, here in LA, our rainy season is actually the winter. That's when we get our rain if we're not in a drought. And I remember sitting in a circle time once and we're using a preset curriculum, the teachers, and they're just learning about spring and rain and all this. And it's like, that's not even how it works here in L.A. It's it's inaccurate on top of everything else. So it's, it's a little bit disappointing when we don't take children seriously enough to try to slow down and ask, why are we teaching or what should we be teaching? And even is this information correct? So if you think back maybe to your own childhood or if you have a kid in preschool or maybe you work in a preschool, just think for a minute about the kind of artwork hanging on the wall. Do you picture things like snowmen or turkeys cut out, maybe snowmen with predetermined or pre-cut little circles and they all kind of look the same, they're all the same color. Ask yourself what percentage of this work was done by the children and which percentage of the work was done by the teacher. You can often tell that almost all of it was the teacher's work, and all the kids really did was slather paint on in a predetermined area with a predetermined color. And that's on top of the fact that the children didn't decide to do this activity at all. It was just kind of something decided by the teacher. And that's what we see in a lot of these circle times is the teacher agenda really dominates. Now contrast that with a higher quality circle time that often begins not with a predetermined agenda but with a problem. Problems and questions make for the best discussions during circle time or really any time during the day. Um, so let's say little Jacob comes to school and he is soaked to the bone. No one knew it was going to rain that day. He didn't dress for it. He's kind of unhappy. And so the children start talking with the guidance of a teacher facilitating. 
Who determines when it rains and when it doesn't? Or how does that work? How do we predict weather? What does weather even mean? What does that word mean? What is rain? Whose job is it to make the predictions? Or whose job at home is it to make sure he's dressed appropriately or grabs the umbrella? Or how do we manage emotions when he's sad or angry? And how do we take care of that? I mean, there's we could, any one of these we could talk about with children for an extended period of time, maybe even over weeks or months and do project work with it. So there's 10,000 different directions we could go in just with that prompt. And it's not gonna necessarily lead directly to content knowledge, at least not directly, um, but it can lead to a lot of other really neat things like learning to sit and listen to someone else and be patient or hear an opposing viewpoint and not freak out. Learning how to have a discussion or a debate, which is something that's not really super duper in common in our world right now, right? And it might spark curiosity about a topic that can last a lifetime or at least for a pretty good amount of time through the school year, it might inspire further learning. And yeah, they're also going to get some content knowledge. So in a classroom that really values the relationship with parents and families, and that respects children in their words, it wouldn't be unusual to also see these children's words posted on the wall or sent out in an email. But I have to say that in a, a typical circle time, you have, what, 15, 20 kids, something like that. So what you notice is there's often, not always, but there's often about four to five that are really making up the bulk of these conversations. And there's, let's say, another four to five chiming in here and there. Then there's another four to five who are just kind of sitting still. They're minding their own business and sort of behaving, quote unquote, you know, following the rules and whatnot, but not really participating. Then you have that last four to five kids who are spinning in their seats, poking each other, whispering or talking, and they're just bored and they want to move. And so we have to ask, are these circle times really appropriate for children? Are they appropriate for some children or, or most of the children, almost all of them? Where do we draw the line? What's the standard? And is it best for your child if you're, the, if you're a parent? You know, I've often heard the argument, well, children are capable. They can do it. This is something that we often talk about in our field to determine if we should be doing something or not. And that's not a bad thing. Like where I work now, we have children put their own sheets on their bed and we know they can do it. And so we ask whether we have college students come in or new staff or whatever, we say, hey, please don't you know, do that for them or help them too much because they can do it. We know they're capable. So it's a good thing. It's a really useful way to frame any practice. But to me, we have to go beyond it because children are capable of doing a lot of things. We could set them to make license plates all day. And you know, they used to work in mills. So we have to ask if the practice is really truly the best use of their time and is it valuable to them and also, what could they be doing instead? I had a conversation once with a, a teacher about a really pretty good, amazing circle time, but it was 30 minutes. And I just kept coming back to my challenge question, which is as great as the circle time is, how much play time are they missing out on? Especially if you're doing multiple circles that are really long like that. So we're, we're really responsible for children's time as adults. And that is a big responsibility. And we've got to be careful not to take away what is natural and what has come out about through evolution and really meets their needs. We have to be careful about substituting in our own agendas. So I'm still somewhat on the fence about the question of should we have circle time or not? I mean, it's good citizenship. It's a good skill to develop to be part of a whole community. And it's one of the few times we pull our entire group together. But again, like everything else on this podcast, it's not really about getting to the right or the wrong answer so much as starting the question and really being willing to ask the questions and have the conversation, that's half the battle right there. Because we can talk about all of the benefits and all the goals children learn in circle time. And 
I buy into a lot of these arguments, and they're good things. But then I have to also ask, well, why can't they learn that later on in elementary school? What's our big rush? Why are we in such a hurry? And why are we pushing children to do so much so early? Because they could be playing on their own, leading their own play, directing it. And when they're doing that, they're going to learn to regulate their emotions and get along with their friends. You know why? Because they have to in order to make the game work and have fun. If they can't regulate their impulse to yell or hit with their friends, they're not going to be a part of that game anymore. And so I think we need to question our, our motives to speed things up so much. Years ago, I spoke with a teacher who was just glowing with pride. She had brought her friend in and showed some samples of children's work. And the friend said, oh, these look like they were done by seven-year-olds. And she was just so happy. And even to share this with the children, and it really didn't resonate with me because I value artwork that looks like it was done by a four-year-old when it's a four-year-old. Because it shows me, hey, they were free to pursue their own interests at their own pace. They weren't hurried up or taught to do art in a quote-unquote real way or with, with serious skills. They're just given the paint and the, and the freedom to be themselves. And so we don't, if we want children's work to look a certain way, it's going to really bias our goals and our intentions with it. We want their play to look quiet, organized, and some people use the word productive, which drives me a little crazy. It's maybe my least favorite adjective to describe children's play. It makes me think of them just being in a cubicle, churning out work, a very adult concept to talk about children's play. And yet we know that children learn so much from this rowdy, big body play. When they're pushing and shoving and, and rolling to the grass, they're learning a lot. They're learning how to read each other's social cues and facial expressions. They're learning how to regulate the urge to really push and really hit when it's halfway between fantasy and pretend and reality. They're learning to stop when someone says stop. So they're learning so much more from this big body play than we could ever teach them with any kind of preset curriculum. So children relentlessly ask me to make them crowns, airplanes, swords, especially paper airplanes lately. They're really big on that. And they want them to look a certain way, and I don't do it. The idea is for them to create this on their own, to learn how, to have fun doing it, to be proud of the results. And so also I've always coached parents in my classroom away from drawing for children. Because once the model is provided, once the parent draws the princess or the frog or the castle, it really shuts down the creative process. Children see the right way to draw it, and they're maybe afraid to draw it and have it not look quite as good, or they're just unhappy with the results. And similarly, it only takes one quote-unquote real sword in the environment for a whole bunch of children to suddenly be really unhappy with these rolled-up pieces of paper and tape they've been playing with for forever in the classroom and that they've been creating independently. I've seen this many times unfold in my classroom on its own. Children love to feel powerful and have these little swords or shooters, and they just roll up paper and they throw tape on it, and that's it. And it just takes one child bringing a real plastic sword or whatever in and all of a sudden, they're just not happy anymore with this. So if you're a preschool teacher or you work in a preschool and you're responsible for circle time, I'd urge you to really think deeper about the content. How does it connect to children's real lives? How is this relevant to them? How is this respecting what they need to learn or need to know or could be using their time? Children here in Southern California, they don't really need to learn about snowmen, I don't think. And so if you're a parent, hopefully you can learn a little bit about looking beneath the surface of things at school instead of just going to the value of an activity by looking at the end product try to dig a little more into the process that went into it because i can tell you the play with the highest quality value for the child is often going to look like a disaster it's going to look like them coming home with muddy 
wet sandy clothes or face paint all over them all over their face they might be rolling and screaming in the grass they might have band-aids on because they've gotten scraped it can look like paint mixing or learning from the mistake of gluing your paper down to the table by accident or a thousand different colors mashed together on a piece of paper or scribbly lines it might be a pile of toys that just is dumped together that needs to be sorted back out and that's one of the earliest stages of play for many younger preschool children we call it the dump and fill so if we can really just trust that children know how to play and know what their needs are at a deeper more primal level we can get out of their way we can support the process and we can stop trying to control it so that's all for today we'll do more episodes about play and diving deeper into what the value of free play is for development and how to help children develop cognitively and academically and and all of that and i'll also be doing an episode pretty soon where i talk about the word curriculum which is maybe one of my least favorite words in this whole career i don't know i guess it's a toss-up between curriculum and productive play it's one or the other or both so look forward to that and thanks for sticking with me through this episode and we'll see you next time thanks Thank you.